This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Coincidence in Mystery Genres. Gnosticism 101. Litvik meets Genre. And Preventing Chernobyl. In Cursed Court, an amazing new board game from Atlas Games, you play minor nobles with limited resources. Oh, so limited. You bet your influence and hope that major figures do what you expect each year at court. Major figures like the king, queen, priestess, and assassin. I don't like the sound of that last one. Winner of the Major Fun Award, Father Geek Approved Seal, and the Dice Tower Seal of Excellence. Citadel's designer Bruno Ferruti says... He has not been as enthralled by a new game in years and calls it an unexpected masterwork. Geek Dad calls it an excellent bidding and bluffing game. It's easy to learn, plays fairly quickly, and looks great on the table. Check out the amazing art, great gameplay, and up-to-the-minute award list at atlas-games.com slash cursed court. Or see the link in the show notes. Or make haste to your friendly local game store. Before all those other lousy minor courtiers beat you to it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where, well, look at that. The dice rolled a double six again, and, hey, that's odd. All of the miniatures depict left-handed dwarves, and, hey, these, well, actually, the Doritos are always nacho cheese. That's not a coincidence. That's just normal, but... Weirdly, we heard Peter Frampton on the Sirius XM car radio while we drove over to the gaming hut because we had it tuned to a weird 70s retro channel. It's a coincidence, Robin. We're trapped in synchronicity. Carl Jung is coming for our very souls. Or maybe we're just going to talk about coincidence in gumshoe. What do you think? I I think we're going to talk about uh, coincidence rather than synchronicity. That's good. Uh, And uh, the origin... The secret origin, if you will, of this segment is as follows. Uh, so for uh, Cthulhu Confidential, uh, which is the uh, gumshoe game that combines uh, film noir or the hardball detective genre and uh, mythos investigation and is tuned for one player and one GM, I wound up writing or adapting, I guess, to some extent, a handout for the player uh, one of the classic issues in Gumshoe is that the characters are seasoned investigators, whereas the players aren't necessarily steeped in investigative technique. But thankfully, with the aid of one little handout, it can give you all sorts of useful advice as a, as a new player to hip you to what you're supposed to be doing and how to succeed in a mystery scenario. So, after playtest... For uh, Cthulhu Confidential, I got the feedback that, hey, we need this handout. And also that a lot of the players were ignoring certain leads because they just wrote them off as coincidences. And so part of this handout, How to Solve a Case, says never assume something is a coincidence. Now, let us rocket forward in time uh, to my rewriting that for uh, the Yellow King role-playing game. And as I got to that section, I went, actually, unlike even, uh, you know, mythos hijinks plus film noir, uh, in the Yellow King, actually, 
things might be coincidences, that things might not be uh, related to your current case, because the Yellow King mythos suggests that uh, reality is beginning to uh, slip and slide and change underneath your feet. And so, especially since this is meant to be played in sort of a campaign format, which might have a certain amount of continuity and also, uh, you know, player subplots and, and things that come up and that are, you know, important but not part of the case of the week, that in fact, telling people that nothing is a coincidence is bad advice in the Yellow King game. Right, because it slows down play. It slows down play, and it means that uh, because, in fact, there's a whole bunch of weird things going on, and part of what you're trying to do is figure out which weird thing to pursue and which weird thing to kick down the road for next week. So there's an example of not even really different genres at all, right? Right, yeah. They're both, both occult mystery. Both occult large. mystery. Both even weird horror, like it's even part of the mm. same subgenre of horror. But the advice to players was quite different. So from there, I thought that we could kick around the idea of uh, coincidence in the mystery genre and uh, how you determine how much coincidence matters in a game and how much uh, how useful is it to say, don't assume anything is a coincidence versus there's a bunch of weird things going on and you have to figure out uh, which weird thing you care about now. So, uh, Ken, do you want to look at uh, your sort of classic uh, gumshoe games and and um, evaluate the usefulness of either of those pieces of contrary advice to them? I, I think Trail falls into closer to the Yellow King, at least as I run and write it, in that part of what I'm attempting to depict is Lovecraft's universe of meaninglessness. So there's lots of things that seem to be meaningful and all of them probably seem to be dangerous because it's the Cthulhu mythos, not just random quantum foam, but the degree to which any given thing points to any other given thing is either kind of up to the player to determine or really just a malign uh, environment happening. Uh, so it's not full on, uh, ignore coincidences that, um, Yellow King might be, but it's also very, very far from, you know, uh, there are no such thing as coincidences. And that's because I think in trail, like you say, you're, you're performing a, a generally a, a campaign game or you're assuming a campaign game is possible. You want to be able to feed weirdness ahead and there's many, many players. So more players will notice things and try and touch them unless you sort of give them permission to let stuff go and know that the story will still manifest itself. Right. Right. And sort of on the other side of that mirror, Knights Black Agents the, in the spy genre, there are no coincidences. There is the old, old line. Uh, Once is coincidence, twice is enemy action. I mean, that's the, that's the line that you, that you hear in these movies and um, probably in the field. And so the, um, may have been one of the Moscow rules now that I think about it, but the notion that, uh, you always have to be alert for the tiniest signal of vampire conspiracy or bad guy activity of any sort implies that if you saw it, if you noticed this was a pattern, it was not a coincidence. It's a pattern somehow. And then that is on the GM in theory that if players say that's the third yellow van that's passed us in a week and the player and the GM's like, Oh crap, I just, defaulted to yellow van because I drove behind a DHL truck a lot. Now I have to either make it a, a part of the thing or I have to deliberately say the vampires are using this coincidence to mask something else. And so a noticed coincidence in a spy genre game like Knights Black Agents 
kind of has to imply something greater because otherwise you're you're taking away from core activity, which is literally spying out the land, looking for patterns, pattern matching. Right. And uh, on the broader scale, Night's Black Agents is a conspiracy game in which the conspiracy is real. So every little chaotic fact that a conspiracy theorist would attempt to assemble into a reality is in fact reality in, in Night's Black Agents. So the advice there is definitely... Uh, don't assume anything is a coincidence. And as you suggest, right. the GM, uh, even if they do have a bunch of back, you know, raw background details that they didn't intend to uh, stick together, eventually they will have to either let the players stick them together, right? Because it's always easier, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in the classic technique. If if you let them speculate for thirty seconds about why there's a bunch of yellow vans, you can go, oh yeah, okay, that's it, and uh, you know, backwards adjust uh, what's going on in your world. Um, Ashen Stars is another uh, gumshoe mystery game, and in that one, the conceit is that uh, you, as the uh, members of this little uh, law enforcement team aboard a small uh, spaceship, are uh, reimposing order on a temporarily orderless fringe of the uh, the combine, the intergalactic empire. And so, in that one, uh, the assumption is that with science and rationalism, you're discovering what's really going on and and finding out. Uh, the truth. And so I would think in that one, the uh, existence of coincidence is something that you want to tamp down on. Or, you know, you could even have your character, you know, check with the with the database and it would just go, oh, well, I've run the algorithm. And and this fact that you've been uh, struggling with, uh, there's actually a 97 percent chance that this is just a random signal noise. So that, that in the in the future, you could even ask your computer to tell you uh, which are the uh, genuine uh, correspondences and which are the uh, instances of your assembling random facts into into nothing. Some of the things, I guess, in the sort of more lighthearted gumshoe world, you can make coincidences coincidences when it's funny. So in a dying earth world, something could be a coincidence because that reinforces both the capriciousness of the universe and the fact that if you try and impose pattern on it, you're just an idiot. You're you're just a a, a chump a lame from a previous incarnation of the earth and you don't get uh, hat wearing much less magic and gay and reach would, I think have a little uh, more of the, we're looking for the plots of Quandos Vorn. So nothing is a coincidence. Or do you think gay and reach would have its own weird coincidences just because those novels, the demon prince's novels are so full of weird happenstance things that pop out of nowhere. Yeah. I would think that uh, happenstance is a lot of a gay and reach games that you, you know, you could get to a planet where you think Quando's Vorn is lurking, and then you arrive there and you find out that all the things that you thought were proof that Quando's Vorn were there. In fact, uh, the uh, activity of uh, the sapient bacteria of the region, and oh, we got uh, we got misdirected completely, and it wasn't even Quando's Vorn trying to do it, but oh, now the bacteria are coming for us. So in order to get Quando's Vorn now, we've got to deal with the, the bacteria escape the bacteria. To escape the planet. Um, Mutant City Blues is a police procedural and tries to create a sense of reality around police work. And in real police work, coincidence happens all the time. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of major cases that are just uh, broken, not due to the careful plotting effort of the uh, lead detectives, but just somebody gets stopped at a traffic light and, you mm-hmm. know, they're or they're caught in a, a uh, alcohol test situation and all of a sudden, oh, look, this guy matches the description and he's been brought in. And that's something that the you don't see as much in 
police fiction just because it is so frustrating. Because it's unsatisfying. <laughs> but it's part, you know, that uh, actual police work is mostly about, uh, you know, after a point, if you're, you know, a few days, especially a cold case, it's about finally finding the person who uh, who wants to talk or, you know, this other person uh, has been missing for 20 years and then they show up and you find, oh, they were in jail, but now they have information for you. So uh, I don't know how far you want to go with that in Mutant City Blues, but if it's like real police work, I, I guess that sort of one of the templates for Mutant City Blues is uh, NYPD Blue. And definitely in that one, that was a lot like real police work in that the cases were not that difficult uh, to solve. And part of that, though, of course, is because it's an ensemble show and they didn't give that much time to solving the right, cases. Right, because uh, that's not what the show is about. The right. show is about a soap opera. And, and Law and & Order is also, for a TV show, has a lot of the coincidence of real police work in it because, of course, the whole conceit is that whoever the police think did it, by the time you get to the second half where the order comes in, oh, no, it was somebody else altogether. Mm-hmm. And so there actually is a lot of interviewing of random uh, witnesses and the sort of... Uh, and sudden people coming out of nowhere to blow the case apart. Yeah, which... Uh, and, and Law and & Order was even more one of my uh, sort of templates for, for that as, as uh, NYPD Blue. And certainly in real spy work, um, in anything that in which you're attempting to detect a distributed network of, of activity, whether it's a drug ring or a... A uh, communist conspiracy or a bunch of vampires, you'll have consp- uh, assuming that you're not the literally only people looking for them. If you're one part of a team, one tagger team in the FBI, one unit of the NSA, whatever, things that are coincidental from a narrative perspective happen all the time because the other teams are also working to break stuff. And even if they don't break something that immediately reveals your answer, they'll break something that sets stuff in motion that will get to your answer. They'll, uh, you know, you're investigating the vampires in Bruges, uh, in Belgium, and the Russian anti-vampire team is investigating the vampires in Switzerland, and the Russians break the vampires in Switzerland, and so one of them flees to Belgium, and that, you know, sets up enough ripples that then you in Belgium have spotted what's going on, and it might seem like that narratively comes out of nowhere, because you, the player characters, don't control the Russians, but if you in the world know there are Russians out there also looking for vampires... It can give you a believable coincidence, if that's the word I'm looking for, right? A thing that happens by chance, but it happens because you were ready for it and because other people are out there making it happen. Right. And implicit in every gumshoe game is the idea that there, information-wise, there is wheat and chaff. Mm-hmm. That there are facts that you get uh, from your investigative abilities that lead you uh, toward the truth of the mystery and toward the next scene uh, where you can uh, learn learn yet more. And ideally, any given scene uh, gives you a number of different possibilities so that you have multiple open leads until you sort of converge on the, the one or two climaxes at the end. And so in there, some of the details are going to be a coincidence, right? That you might, your military history ability may tell you that the gun you discover is of a particular uh, sort. You know, oh, this is the, the gun that uh, until two years ago uh, was the sidearm of uh, French military officers. And that might mean something, but it doesn't inherently go, oh, well, let's go to the uh, the armory to, to research this gun. Uh, now, there might be another thing where that gun does obviously lead you to a gun dealer or something, but you can sort of tell which clues potentially lead you to another source of investigation and which one are just sort of background facts some of which will gain context later, but most of which will just be sort of 
fun opportunities for you to uh, be told that you are an expert in things like uh, the sidearms of French military officers. Right. And that's the core clue versus not core clue mechanic that sort of signals that with the, you know, the light on that clue. If you got it by a core clue, then it almost by definition can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, unless right. you had a some sort of weird ability in some other game of, uh, you know, uh, luck, actually, maybe, are, are there luck powers in Mutant City Blues? I think there are, right? Um, there are, but it's contained. Uh, one of the right. whole points of Mutant City Blues is that none of the superpowers are framed in a way that blows mystery plots. Right. So, I mean, we talked about the existential detective cases before, which are almost all about stumbling into the answer via coincidence or holistic decision-making or whatever you want to call dumb luck. And so... In that subgenre, you could play that out in many, I think we, obviously we've already talked about it, but you could play that out in different sorts of lights in a gumshoe world. Certainly in Yellow King, you could have an existential detective story happening all the time. And in that case, it might actually be your job is sort of like Sam Spade to get hit by everything in the setting until dumb luck reveals which of the hitters is the bad guy. Or is responsible for the, uh, the the core mystery, whatever that happens to be, and so in the same way that Sam Spade barely ever solves any cases, he just sort of shows up and gets beaten on by the case. You could have someone who shows up and lucks into the case as, as a narrative. Uh, whether that could be right. a particularly satisfying series narrative, I guess, is uh, an open question. Even Inspector Clouseau solved mysteries. Yeah, <laughs> he solves them by falling into them. Right. Um. And so I guess the, the final note uh, before we head out of this segment is if uh, as an action item for GMs, when you're designing scenarios or improvising them, uh, when you're laying out uh, facts that are just sort of ancillary facts or uh, give you a sense of the setting without actually leading to the mystery, make sure you don't accidentally turn those into coincidences that will lead people to want to investigate them and lead to uh, nothing, which is frustrating. So if you... Uh, you know, if the character with military history asks what kind of sidearm that is in one scene, uh, make sure that you don't have another random character polishing the same gun in a later scene, unless that actually is a connection that means something that leads to the mystery, because then, then they do go off to the, to the gunsmith, but you don't have anything planned for that and, uh, don't have a way of illuminating the mystery with that. So that you want to make sure that, uh, you know, as Chekhov said, if there's a clue about a gun, in the first act, uh, make sure it's actually about the mystery and not about some other just random uh, side detail. And on that note, I think uh, I'm seeing a clue that leads us, a core clue that leads us through this commercial uh, to uh, whatever segment lays on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, 
caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The Thunderbolts coming our way from Mount Olympus and the creaky deus ex machina waiting to be lowered uh, from above the stage uh, down onto the stage so that the uh, final uh, speeches can be given by the deities tell us we've once more entered the positively uh, mythic and meaningful precincts of the mythology hut. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer Stuart Robertson has convened us in the mythology hut to ask for a 101 on Gnosticism. Uh, so can the, uh, as is appropriate to this most uh, mysterious of topics, uh, its origins are shrouded in mystery, but our uh, steward and our other viewers want to know when that really intense guy uh, who plays hacky sack and he, he has white guy dreadlocks uh, corners you at a party and wants to talk about Gnosticism. <laughs> you know this guy is probably bad news, but if you'd like enough sort of facts to seem knowledgeable enough about Gnosticism to possibly escape his clutches, other than the 2nd century AD, where do you start? Where do you start? Um, well, one can start, obviously, with this very podcast, which exists to help exactly that person trapped in exactly that party by exactly that uh, Trustafarian. But I would start with the book, The Gnostic Gospels, uh, by Elaine Pagels. And Elaine Pagels has been criticized by a lot of historians and criticized by a lot of uh, churchmen for her reading of the Gnostic Gospels, but she provides probably the most accessible still uh, sort of first glance at what the Gnostics uh, thought, or at least what a bunch of Gnostics thought, because one of the things that you will notice as you get deeper into Gnosticism, Gnosticism is that there are more Gnosticisms possibly than there were Gnostics. Um, right. There are certainly lots and lots of them because one of the things that characterizes Gnosticism is, as its name indicates, a search for gnosis, which means knowledge, and that search is a personal search. Uh, there are gurus, there are teachers in Gnosticism who will guide you to illumination, but that illumination depends on you being able to make it. And if you couldn't make it, you were probably just a clay person and didn't have um, uh, heaven stuff in you. So too bad, so sad. Right. And the term Gnosticism is, again, it's a backwards construction. It wasn't that there were... People, uh, A, invented Gnosticism, and that B, the second thing they invented was the term Gnosticism to describe uh, what they were up to. Right, yeah. Um, basically, during the uh, Reformation, when people needed to start categorizing things that were not Catholic, and the, the Catholics, of course, had categorized a whole bunch of Gnosticisms as various different heresies, and someone looking for a sort of umbrella word uses the term Gnosticism to sort of join all of these things that seem uh, related conceptually or structurally or just intellectually in the sense that they came from someone who was taught by someone who was taught by someone. Uh, so they have a, a common chain of, of, uh, of, of descent and teaching. And that, of course, is the other sort of wrinkle into this is because the Gnostics 
grew up in one of the most cosmopolitan parts of the ancient world, uh, Alexandria and Syria in the first century AD ish. Um, and you'll get pushback on literally everything I just said, except Alexandria Be- because they grew up in this cosmopolitan environment. They're taking, uh, sources from er, non-rabbinical Judaism. They're taking sources from the very proto Kabbalists. If you believe that Kabbalah goes back to the first century, which it might, they're taking obviously stuff from, uh, Plato and the Neoplatonists, the guys who are studying Plato, uh, after he stops being cool. Um, and, uh, the people who are trying to reconcile Christ and Plato, lots of those guys. And it takes a lot of stuff from Persian dualist religion. And right. this is a component that a lot of European scholars of Gnosticism hate to admit is part of Gnosticism because you, now you just sound like you're a Zoroastrian heresy and a lame one at that compared to the coolness of being a pure Zoroastrian. And they would rather be a cool Christian heretic because that way they get to, you know, um, uh, deal weed in the parking lot. Right. D- despite the later categorizing efforts of scholarly Germans, uh, the uh, people who were all part of this ferment uh, were not worried about fitting into categories, but uh, rather they were looking to bust them. Um, so uh, given all of, all of that, uh, now that we've established how uh, uh, murky and ill-defined everything is, yeah. uh, is there a core set of uh, mythological uh, impulses that we would broadly term uh, Gnosticism for the purposes of this 101? Right. This is uh, sort of my piling up of the pyramid, and I'm sure other Gnostic- Gnostical scholars can pile them in their own way. But to me, the core of Gnosticism has to be Gnosticos. It has to be Gnosis, the notion that there is a secret knowledge, not a public knowledge. If you don't believe that, you're not a Gnostic, no matter what else you think. And therefore, that implies that Scripture, which is by definition revealed to everyone, is not the answer. That it must therefore be anti or counter or against the notion of a public Scripture. So when you have something like the Gnostic Gospels, these become Gospels that incorporate Gnostic beliefs or are accepted by Gnostics or are generally ruled heretical, again, not for being Gnostic, as you say, but for being heretical in their own right. And so the term Gnostic Gospels is almost a um, uh, contradiction in terms, but because those Gospels then got buried and lost, finding them becomes a Gnostic act well after their time of composition. But the notion is a Gnostic has to be anti-scriptural, it has to be anti-revealed truth. Further on, that means that the revealed universe, the universe that we all live in, has to be an illusion. Because if you could just learn things by looking at stuff, then that's not gnosis. That's just study. Everyone can do that. So that implies that the world is made by someone who wants to trick us. And that implies that the guy who made the world, the demiurge in uh, most Gnostic terminology, is evil. And this sort of feeds into the Zoroastrian notion that there are two creative spirits, a good one, Uhura Mazda, and a bad one, Araman, and the bad one made some things and the good one made other things, and which things they made is a thing for Zoroastrians to fight over. But by the time uh, a guy named Mani comes along in the 3rd century AD um, and founds Manichaeanism, he has it sort of sorted out where everything that's flesh and fun and female is made by... Araman and everything that's fiery and spiritual and elevated is made by Ahur Mazda or Mazda. And so the notion that the created universe and especially the uh, experiential universe and the felt universe and the girl part of the universe is a lie and a trick and a creation of the evil 
uh, devil feeds right into Christianity because, of course, St. Augustine begins his intellectual career as a Manichaean and does not get rid of all of that before uh, becoming a Christian. So that that pump sort of takes a, a core aspect of Gnosticism and sort of sneaks it in the back door into Christianity. And you see people, even now, people who are generally regarded as Christians, if not particularly orthodox ones, like Taylor du Chardin, who believe, oh, no, uh, the created world is is all good, but it's also all, it doesn't matter. And it's like, well, then in what case is it good? How can it? And so you have this sort of Gnostic uh, elements sneaking around in the back. But the notion that the world is an illusion and that the illusionist is cruel and evil and a trickster is, all of this is following on from the central core notion of secret knowledge being the key to secret knowledge. And so once you've decided that the real world or the visible world is an illusion created by an evil trickster, that means there must have been a good God who is hidden from us. Aha, now we're getting to what our Gnosticism is good for, our Gnosis is good for. And the good God had his own creation way up in the sky somewhere in the heavens, and bits of that creation sort of filter down through the cracks and flaws in the evil creation and dribble down into the real world. And if you can spot them, then that is the Gnostic um, uh, Pokemon Go activity, right? Is that you know that you, by dint of being a Gnostic, by dint of searching for a truer truth than the real world, you must be part of a uh, heavenly creation or star stuff or whatever you want to call it. And so you have to avoid all the mud people who are trying to drag you down into, you know, eating burritos and uh, hanging out with ladies. And so you have to sort of find other elements of star stuff. And because the devil is so devilly, the demiurge is so bad, sometimes he hides the most important star stuff in the worst places. And this is where the mythology that you seek Sophia, uh, the divine wisdom, which is the closest emanation of God to humans. It's the one you need to grab onto so you can start getting up into good God. And that, and, and Sophia will be hidden in a whorehouse is, is, is the worst place imaginable to a Gnostic. And so, that mythology then sort of recapitulates and recombines and becomes as complex as you want it to be because the Neoplatonists were happy to make up imaginary emanations from God. The Kabbalists also super happy to add seven heavens, nine heavens, a million heavens, however many heavens. Uh, you'll see St. Paul even references going to the third heaven at one point in one of the letters. So uh, St. Paul is part of this whole fermenting uh, Alexandria to Syria arc that is creating Gnosticism at the same time as it is sort of creating Christianity as we understand it and is creating also Judaism as we understand it because the poor Jews um, are going to be stuck with the, the stuff that was outside Jerusalem after the Romans come and knock down the temple in 70 AD. So two of the major Abrahamic religions come out of this same intellectual process and spiritual process and Gnosticism is sort of either, depending on how you want to d- define it, either it's the religion that came out of it and then didn't tell anyone because that's not Gnostic, or it's just the Legos that were left over and everyone sorts them out however they want and build a crummy robot and calls it a Gnostic faith. Right, because it, it's a response to one of the classic problems of monotheism, which is that if you uh, propose a god who is uh, caring, limitless, and good, and who uh, who intervenes, uh, then you look at the world of suffering and go, oh, what's going on here? And so how did that happen? How did that happen? And so uh, this is uh, Gnostics have a, a great answer for that, which is uh, the world is crummy because this is, you know, we were ripped off. This is not the world we were promised. And the uh, 
the good God is limited. He is limited by the actions of, of the demiurge. And our job is to uh, crawl our way through all of the, the, the cruft and get to the, the real thing. And of course, there's always the uh, emotional appeal is everybody else is a rube, but I know the truth. And exactly. because the world is an illusion, just going out and trying to find evidence of stuff is just a, a trick. And so, you know, my staying at home and, and thinking of this uh, increasingly elaborate Neoplatonist uh, superstructure to glom onto this basic idea, that's as good an exploration as any. So you can stay at and home. And better than just, most because it doesn't mean you're out there eating burritos and hanging out with ladies. Yeah. Um, well, you might have, you know, and so you're sitting there enjoying your millet or whatever, or you know, perhaps at home you, you have your burrito and nobody knows. Yeah, well, all right. That's, you, you're eating Eldeboth with every delicious bite. Um, so the Gnostics spend some period of time uh, saying, actually, Jesus was a Gnostic, and this gospel I just wrote proves it. And it was sort of the job of the Athanasian fathers, broadly spoken, the church fathers, to say, no, he's not, and take all that <laughs> stuff out. And you can argue, and I suppose people still argue hilariously over whether or not um, uh, Jesus did or did not say Gnostic stuff. Um, Jesus is part of the same intellectual milieu. So even if Jesus doesn't mean, yes, the uh, creation we're all in is a is a dirty lie, and I'm not going to tell you because that would be against the purpose of Gnosticism. And all the stuff about evangelizing my truth is just a cover story for the rubes. People will still, out of their own mouths, say that that are not third century Greeks. But uh, by now, it is a general understanding that Jesus comes out of this same milieu and things that sound like Gnosticism in uh, the scriptures are either because Jesus had some Gnostic tenets to his broader thinking or because the guys who were writing him down decades later certainly went to Gnostic school at some point or because the Athanasians just did a rotten job of editing and, you know, didn't erase um, uh, enough of the stuff. I mean, there's all manner of bickering and arguing like i say uh saint paul in the, in in his letters there's still you know gnostic terminology that's used but saint paul is a greek he's very very smart and educated and he's a rhetorician his job literally was to go around and argue people out of being wrong about jesus and so um that implies that he was actually pretty good at framing things in the terms that his opponents who in many cases would have been these gnostic Jews and uh, and greeks would understand and have to accept from him because he was using proper rhetoric, right? Right. And if you're looking for a secret pattern behind any text, uh, guess what? You can find it. You find it. And so there, <laughs> there are two big revivals of Gnosticism. There's the rediscovery that you mentioned uh, uh, after the Reformation, and then uh, the uh, they kind of come charging back again as part of the, the, the New Age and their rediscovery of mysticism in the 70s and 80s, and were popularized again for hacky sack man to uh, start to appreciate. And... Do you think there is something particularly telling about Gnosticism coming back at that time? Or was that just a process of, you know, the uh, progress of archaeology and, and uh, biblical adjacent scholarship? I mean, at some point, yeah, we're going to find the, the Nag Hammadi texts, which is what happens. We're going to find the lost gospels and translate them. Some of them are actually not that lost, but the fact that they were, in fact, that old was sort of new. Um, and that would have created at least a stir intellectually. I think socially, um, you know, the, the notion that, um, the world is a rotten lie, uh, and there's a pure truth out there uh, appeals to people, as you say, in all times, because the world often does behave like a rotten lie. But certainly after, say, you know, uh, World War II and Vietnam, 
uh, there are many, many more people in the West who are willing to believe that, in fact, everything we were told is a lie. And so Gnosticism comes out as a response to that. There's a, a political philosopher named Eric Vogelin who hates Gnosticism like um, uh, like poison and argues that Gnosticism is a part and parcel of basically of Hegelianism and that uh, any sort of Hegelian movement like Marx pointing um, is going to lead to a revival of Gnosticism. I think that you can certainly have a non-Gnostic Marxism because Marx is very much about, you know, if you just read enough and, and, and learn enough, you'll you'll figure out what's going on just like I did. He's not a secret history guy. He's very much a look at the math. And it's like your math is incorrect. Well, still, I did math. Um, so the so so I think that um, Vogelin is maybe off the beam a little bit. But if you sort of go at one remove and say sociologically, are we more or less uh, open to Gnosticism at a time when the orthodoxy is less powerful? I think that kind of is you know, tautology almost that the way you can tell that the orthodoxy has lost its hold is that people are, you know, buying into Gnosticism more. That's sort of the job of the orthodoxy was to stop that and to keep everyone in a proper church. So yes, I, I think that there certainly is some element of, uh, of Gnosticism being one of the standard, whether you want to call it an immune response or a disease response to the weakening of uh, the orthodoxy that is going to happen, as we've mentioned, during the Reformation and then also during the sort of falling away uh, from orthodox religion that began in the 19th century and has accelerated throughout the 20th and maybe is going to be reversed by the 21st. But who can say? Um, and you can look, for example, at The Matrix as possibly the most accessible, popular piece of Gnosticism produced in the last uh, batch of it, um, that is just a straight-up Gnostic fable. And just like regular Gnosticism, it begins strong, and then the more you uh, iterate on it, the weaker it gets. Uh, right. Well, uh, we got to make sure that this uh, segment uh, doesn't become uh, increasingly weak as it goes on. So let's stop it and uh, head on through uh, this exciting commercial message to whatever lies on the other side. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, 
not Swedish. Keeping the show alive happens not by coincidence, but through the generosity of Patreon backers like... Wayne Rossi! Ben Dilworth! Ben White! Christopher Kelly, And Sean Mulhern! It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Aaron Galen White asks Robin, oh, could Robin tell us more about Don DeLillo's Zero K and how Litfic or indie games, ah, way to diss trad games, Aaron Galen White, can ring purpose from genre tropes without necessarily dis- delivering the expected genre thrills? Oh, I guess if you assume that only trad games are thrilling, way to diss indie games too, Aaron Galen White. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of question critiquing. Uh, in, in this intro, Ken. Yeah, well, it, it, I got all head up with the Gnostic segment. Now I'm looking for secret truths everywhere. Oh, uh, there you go. It's all the Demiurge's fault. It's not, it's it not is, Aaron's it's the fault Demiurge. at all. He's, he's what done it. Him and this war. So, yes, uh, Litvik and, uh, and Don DeLillo's Zero K. So, uh, this is, uh, DeLillo's most recent novel. You may know him, uh, from such previous works as, uh, white noise, this classic, uh, satire of, uh, suburban intellectual decay, or Libra, his, uh, uh, thrilling reconstruction of the, uh, the final days and weeks of Lee Harvey Oswald. And, uh, Zero K is about a, uh, a man named, uh, Jeffrey Lockhart, who has, uh, is a smart guy, but kind of a directionless underachiever his whole life, and part of that has to do with his relationship with his estranged uh, Father Ross, who is a hard-charging kind of billionaire type who uh, abandoned him and his mother before he went off to become super wealthy. And Jeffrey's father uh, invites him to this installation in uh, some an undisclosed location somewhere in the deserted heart of uh, Central Asia, one of the stands uh, where there's a this sort of cryogenic institute. And it turns out that Jeffrey's uh, stepmother, Artis, is uh, dying of cancer, and uh, the plan is this sort of cultish organization that has this whole ideology, uh, uh, possibly somewhat Gnostic one, about the uh, nature of, of reality and immortality is going to uh, assist in chirogenically uh, freezing artists. Of course, they're going to kill her in order to do that, because, of course, you want to, when you thaw someone out, you want them to still be alive. And then it uh, transpires that uh, Ross has decided to also be killed and frozen at the same time as artists so that they can be uh, woken up together uh, sometime in the far future. And a lot of the action or description of the novel is about uh, Jeffrey's time at this installation with this group, and there's a lot of descriptive uh, detail of the sort of eerie or disturbing uh, art installations that are part of this complex and about the people who are there and the way they relate to each other. And then uh, there's a section of it that is uh, sort of more of a standard literary novel where he's back in the world after having uh, this experience. And I'm not going to keep describing because it's a, a really good book and uh, worth checking out. Uh, but if you were reading the first section of that book, knowing that it was written by a genre author... <laughs> Right. Yeah. If you knew that it was written by, uh, you know, William Gibson could easily do right. something like this, but it would also have a thriller element to it. Right. Or, or Lavi Tidar would do something with a weird existential uh, science fiction-y type element to it. Right. And then in that case, you would just be waiting for either the mercenaries to show up and, and start a, a, a fight, or you would, uh, in, in an overtly, a, a horror writer, you'd be waiting for the 
people to unfreeze and come back as zombies or whatever, but this is a literary novel. It's about waiting the, for them to wake up in other worlds that are weirdly evocative of the previous novels by the same guy. Right. Yes. And so, uh, the object of this is to explore the, uh, the ideas and the sense of impending apocalypse that is, uh, definitely a connection to white noise, uh, but it's sort of a more somber kind of, uh, you know, civilization committing suicide kind of vibe to it and to explore the characters and the relationship uh, between them. So, uh, it, uh, remains as, as vivid as anything that you might see, you know, say from Jeff Vandermeer or, or whoever, but is not interested in going there. And you know, it's probably not going to go there because it's, uh, Don DeLillo. So the, right. the question, uh, there is to, I think, explore the relationship between things that we think of as genre, uh, and how they are treated in a literary fiction. Uh, context. And I think probably why Aaron is asking about applying them to indie games is can you have something that kind of has some genre elements into it without the player's desire for things to go full genre to sort of tip them in that direction? Because, uh, you know, if, for example, your uh, drama system does a really great job of tackling any uh, literary fiction uh, work that you want to think of, you can do completely mundane settings. But at some point, if everybody goes to this uh, cryogenic installation, are you going to set up in advance that, okay, all the genre places you think this is going to go, it can't go there. It's part of the ground rules for it. Otherwise, some player or another is going to start to heavily foreshadow the zombies or the mercenaries or what have you. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, that sort of framing is what obviously the publisher does when they put literary fiction on the back or call it a novel instead of, you know, uh, the latest in the star strong epic series. Um, even though there are obviously to get out the emails out of the way, there are plenty of, uh, genre fiction writers who write in literary fashion. And there are plenty of literary fiction writers who have written straight up genre novels. Um, Kingsley Amos pops to mind, but there's a zillion others. Um, and so you can read, Kingsley Amos is the alteration as an alternate history. And that's really what it is. It's also a great novel because it's Kingsley Amos, but he really is writing for the same genre thrill that Harry Turtledove writes uh, an alternate history for is to see people play out in a weirdly familiar world. And that's the fun of it. And that's what he's doing. And he's doing the exact same thing there, just better because he's a better writer. Right. And, and often this is just completely arbitrary. Uh, in terms of marketing and, and the milieu in which the writer began their career. Mm-hmm. So if that had been Kingsley Amos's first book, you know, maybe right. this is a Ken, Ken's time machine episode, you know, what, <laughs> what, what is the universe where Kingsley Amos is one of the foundational figures of, of, uh, science fiction and fantasy rather than literary fiction or yeah. the author Heidi Julewitz, for example, there's a really fun uh, book called The Vanishers, which is modern day wizards battling each other. Uh, she's uh, one of the founders of the Believer magazine, and she's part of the, that literary scene. So her book was uh, marketed as literary fiction. It has a sort of abstract uh, uh, cover uh, that you would expect from a work of literary fiction, but it could just as easily have a, a cool illustration of magicians battling each other on it <laughs> because it's a straight-up uh, modern-day uh, fantasy with magic. Other other examples of uh, obviously genre pieces written by uh, writers who are considered literary uh, writers would be, uh, for example, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Uh, it is a, a post-apocalyptic fiction. No, you know, no disguising that. Uh, it has 
a sort of relentlessly realistic version of uh, the post-apocalypse in it. But, uh, you know, again, if he had started his career with that book, he might be in a different section of the of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Gustave Flaubert wrote a sword and sorcery novel <laughs> uh, called Salambo, which is pretty fun. So uh, part of this is just what expectations we have of, of a writer and and whether they're allowed to hop between uh, sections of the bookstore. I mean, are you the kind of reader who says, obviously, the ghost in Hamlet is a psychological projection? Or are you the kind of reader who says, obviously, Hamlet is a ghost story? And so I mean, you can people have read it both ways. And Shakespeare is writing a play that is a bigger play than either of those questions, which is why he's Shakespeare and we're not. But um you can look at these sort of elements of genre of expected genre thrills in Shakespeare even, and still be asking yourself, is Shakespeare writing despite the witches or because of the witches? And there is no good answer. Right. Um, you might answer that at the time people thought there were witches. So it's, it's a realist yeah. play. But the question is, did Shakespeare think there were witches? Because at the time people also did not think there were witches. Right. So that does not solve the question. Sadly, he knew that the client thought there were the, witches, yes. which is not the <laughs> yeah, same I, thing. I think you, you didn't tell the king there weren't witches. That was not a, <laughs> right. yeah. a good time to be saying that. And there are also uh, books of straight up literary fiction that I think are interesting and appealing to readers of fantasy and, and science fiction in which, uh, you know, anything that deals with the mythic, uh, even if it doesn't depart on a literal level from uh, naturalism, uh, I think are something that uh, appeals to us. And, uh, for example, uh, the Deptford Trilogy by Robertson Davies, Canada's own. Uh, there's uh, three books called Fifth Business, The Manticore, and World of Wonders. And uh, we're already talking about Jung. Uh, <laughs> It was a, it's a weird coincidence that we're talking about Jung. Uh, and so, uh, Davies sort of uses and introduces Jungian symbolism to tell the stories of three intertwined lives. And there's also a sense, uh, of that sort of, uh, Easter egg continuity that you get from, uh, a complicated, uh, pop culture mythology insofar as each of those stories is told from a separate viewpoint and it revisits events seen in previous novels from different point of view. So the uh, central mystery uh, uh, introduced at the beginning of Fifth Business, in which why did this uh, fourth member of the group, uh, why was he found dead with a rock in his mouth? You have to get all the way through the trilogy to fully understand uh, not only the, the literal, but the, the mythic explanation for that uh, that mystery. So if you uh, want to check that out, I think that's something that is a, a great example of character-based storytelling uh, that is infused uh, with the sorts of things that interest us in, in geek land, but also uh, can show complex narrative and, and character. And as I, you know, a thing I always say is that if you want to be a writer in any genre field, you should also read broadly, not only in other genres, but uh, lit fic, which of course is also a genre. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I knew who said it because it's one of the best things I've ever read in the world of literary criticism is that literary fiction is an extraordinarily constrained subset of the Gothic. And it's just true. And it's beautiful when you think about it that way. Uh, speaking, however, of literary fiction that opens uh, coincidentally on other topics in this episode, I could adduce both John Fowles's or Foles's The Magus uh, and Donna Tartt's The Secret History, both of which are very literary, very fictional um, and are both sort of uh, agnostic books in the sense that uh, John Fowles is what if you meet 
the guy who actually knows and what is that like and what does that do and does he actually know and how do you know if you actually know and it's very interior and very uh very very literary but it's also it's like reading Dennis Wheatley if Dennis Wheatley could write i mean it's really good so it's very exciting and strange and 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 mythically informed as you say which is what made me think of it and then of course Donna Tartt's the secret history is someone gets caught up on the fringes of a gnostic cult maybe and what's going on and how much of this actually happened and how much of this is conflation of some other um probably uh, sexual initiation that they were not comfortable with and the secret history sort of gives you one story that is a straight up sort of a thriller and it also gives you another story that's a psychological exploration of this character and it gives you another story that is maybe about a secret gnostic cult and maybe it's not and who can say and it's again it's it's super super well written and it really drills into the character's um experience and and and, and lingers over it in a way that uh, uh many genre writers do not and uh, although again, I mean, Lacare spends just as much time lingering over George Smiley as Donna Tartt does over any of her protagonists. So there you go. So, so basically, I think what you're what we're talking about in terms of trying to create a uh, piece of literary fiction or an indie game that uh, refers to the images and ideas of genre fiction is that rather than taking the plot down the road suggested by the questions of who dies at the end or uh, do the good guys win? You are taking the the big question that overhangs everything is which side of the character's dramatic pulls are they going to land on? So, uh, yes, what is the are, emotional and human response to what's happening? Yeah. So, how has this person changed by this series of events? So that uh, Jeffrey Lockhart in Zero K is uh, forever altered by the by his uh, trips to this installation and and his the way that his relationship with his uh, father and his stepmother uh, resolve. But that doesn't require uh, any action or any mystery, uh, because what can often happen is that uh, uh, Norman Mailer once said that the problem of genre writing is that uh, if you have too much plot at the end, it's a terrible existentiality to uh, bring down on the writer because you start spending all of your time at the end resolving the plot in store instead of, uh, by implication, uh, the human stories of, of the people uh, enmeshed in your plot. And so that's sort of the probably the classic distinction is not even which of those exists in a given work, but which of them is given weight. And uh, in an indie game, you would have to, uh, given who you're probably running an indie game with or for, uh, install mechanisms to ensure that it remains on the personal level, on the relationships of the uh, emotional transformation uh, rather than the question of who wins the fight at the end. I think you could look at things that are sort of these deep dive emotional LARP technologies like Jeep form and some of the other LARP stuff that are really about, they explain what happened. You know, you are in a cannibal apocalypse or whatever, but you're not cannibals and you're not going to fight cannibals. This is how you deal with your uncle who you hate and you're both in the same room together and straighten it out because you got to, otherwise cannibals will eat you. Right. And that sort of, you know, deliberately making that emotional exploration part of the game, maybe you could do it at the, uh, in the tabletop as saying the genre fiction exists to drive you into these sort of petitioner grantor situations to borrow your terminology. And then you play those out and how you determine that maybe determines the out- outcome of the fiction, or maybe it just determines your emotional arc through the game. 
and the outside world just sort of keeps going on as it keeps going on, right? There's still going to be uh, dueling magicians, or there's still going to be an alternate history, or there's still going to be a weird um, Jungian magic mystery going on, but the core activity of play is these interpersonal segments between the petitioner and the grantor, and so that once each character has had one and come out the other side changed, that's how you know the game is over. Yes, it's it's what's going on in the background between uh, two people or, or more with a conflict while the uh, fight between the CGI characters happens over in the distance. And on that note, uh, let us, uh, we're talking about ending, so let's end this segment and head on through to the next one. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long whispered of slipcase set is shipping in June. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks. Just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, which is, of course, the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our humble protagonist back into the streams of history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate them. And this time around, uh, Patreon backer Jacob Vorsma poses the following. If you prevented the Chernobyl disaster, how would that affect the end of the Cold War and collapse of the Soviet Union? And of course, in his question, Jacob refers to the previous Cold War, uh, not the current one. Keyword there is Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, well, uh, preventing the Chernobyl disaster, first of all, saves a whole bunch of lives. Um, 31 first responders to begin with and some unknown number of people who died of uh, cancer in the plume uh, re- released by the reactor basically, uh, practically melting down. I don't think it quite melted down. I think it just sort of blew up. Not like a bomb, just like a big steam boiler that someone has left, uh, the, the cap on, uh, blows up. But it's still scattered radiation all over a good chunk of the Ukraine and Belarus. Like I say, it killed 31 first responders who probably are the reason it didn't kill, uh, tens of thousands of people instead of, uh, the thousands of people that it did. Um, or hundreds of thousands. And uh, just as a reminder, this happened in April of 1986. Exactly. Um, and at the time, it was widely seen both on both sides of the Iron Curtain as an indictment of Soviet central planning and command and control response because our worst nuclear disaster didn't kill anybody. So there, an odd thing to brag about, but here we are. Yeah, sorry. We had a much better nuclear disaster. We had a much better, much classier nuclear disaster. Best nuclear disasters. Um, even if you remember back in Star Trek VI, 
They decided that it would be the energy moon blowing up around the planet Konos that caused the Klingon Empire to fall. So even at the time, people were saying, well, Chernobyl, obviously, is what caused the Soviet Union to fall. It uh, sort of took the mask off the tyrant, revealed that not only was he a tyrant, he was incompetent at doing any of the things you let him be a tyrant for, uh, created nationalist feeling in the Ukraine that eventually undermined the Soviet Union, and bang, America wins, America wins, USA. That is, uh, to put it mildly, not right. Um, the Soviet Union suffered from much bigger problems than did they have garbage nuclear power plants. And the thing that won the Cold War can be summarized as Soviet grain production plateaued in 1960. Don't be a Stalinist, kids. It's bad for your grain. Grain plat- production plateaued in 1960. The population kept growing. The Moscow was a month away from food riots in 1989. Um, this is not a thing that you want you to be if you are trying to be a superpower. And in order to fix it after the um, oil price spike, which had kept them alive in the 70s, went away, uh, thanks to uh, Saudi Arabia not liking the Soviets invading Muslim countries, the Soviets had to negotiate for credit from the West. And during the 1980s, uh, it had been the quiet uh, policy of the Reagan administration to not buy credit extended by individual banks to the Soviet Union so that you would loan money to the Soviet Union thinking, well, they'll just steal it from people and give me money and that'll be great. I'm a bank. But you couldn't sell that debt forward anymore under Reagan. You used to just be able to package it up with other debt and sell it on and it wasn't on your books. But the uh, Reagan administration said, nope, you're going to be keeping it on your books. So when the Soviets come back to the table in 1988 for another big old loan, the only places they can go are government guaranteed banks like the Federal Reserve and uh, the European Central Bank and the Bank of London. And those banks, of course, are directly controlled by the governments, not by bankers. And so they say, sure, we'll loan you $100 billion as long as you don't invade Eastern Europe ever. And once you can't invade Eastern Europe, guess what happens? Eastern Europe gets free, and there we are. So that is what made the Soviet Union fall, and it was going to happen with or without Chernobyl. Chernobyl, you could possibly argue, if it had not gone, it might not have created the same degree of immediate Ukrainian national feeling. So Ukraine might be a more cooperative ally of the, of the Russians in the same way that Belarus is. Uh, but on the other hand, the Ukrainians had a longer standing beef than just uh, Chernobyl and what Chernobyl yes, there's did a, do. There's a certain famine that you, you have to get yeah, over. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a certain genocide that they're still hurt about. And so the, uh, what Chernobyl did do is it massively increased their welfare payments right at the time that they became independent. So it sort of crippled their state, uh, in a lot of ways economically and providing more generous welfare payments to Chernobyl survivors became a political, uh, thing in the Ukraine. So they were not able to engage in the sort of shift to a, a less state controlled economy the way that the other post Soviet republics, some, some of them were, some of them weren't. Um, and so they, if you don't have the uh, Chernobyl disaster, you have the Ukraine maybe being on a, a sounder financial footing, uh, at the end of the, at the end of the, um, uh, Cold War, uh, the cleanup and remediation of Chernobyl cost the Soviets 18 billion rubles, according to Gorbachev in an interview. Uh, that doesn't sound like a lot of rubles, but compared to their ongoing operations, it was, it would mark about 10%, depending on how you measure it, between 5 and 10% of their entire military budget would have gone into this remediation. They would have needed that for, uh, building, uh, satellites and nuclear weapons and whatnot. So it's a little money they didn't have. But again, it's not a gigantic amount of cash. Uh, it certainly is not the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's just 
one more thing that comes in. It's like, oh, I forgot to pay the electrical bill. It's not like, oh, the house is being repossessed. So uh, you've looked at this and, and determined that, uh, at least in terms of the uh, Cold War and the fate of the Soviet Union, this does not, your intervention would not spark a uh, markedly different timeline. It would be different along the margins. Uh, but there might be other reasons uh, why Time Incorporated would ask you to prevent the disaster, for example. Saving those lives. Yeah, that's save people's lives, or something bad might happen involving mutant wild boar. So uh, if they ask you to do it, how do you go about that? Because your usual technique of, uh, uh, A, drinking people under the table, well, it's Russia and the Ukraine, so... Right, yeah, but okay. that, it's, so the setting is on high, I yeah. got you. And uh, secondly, your technique of often you will just take back documentation uh, from the future and show people what's going to happen so they don't do that. Well, again, uh, see previous reference to uh, centralized uh, planning and a uh, uh, sort of ossified state and the fact that uh, nobody at the plant would want to admit that they there was anything wrong or there's a problem. There'd be no uh, upside to them. And in fact, they had a document that explained how to avert the Chernobyl disaster. It was called How to Do a Safety Test Without Blowing Up the Plant, and they ignored it. Right. So uh, <laughs> yeah. so this gives you a, a big challenge, which uh, uh, merely by dint of showing that it would be uh, uh, not solve the problem you're asked about, uh, we're not going to let you duck that. So how would you stop Chernobyl, uh, given all those constraints? I think the way to stop Chernobyl, given those constraints, is to go way back way back to the beginnings of nuclear power in America and in Russia and propose a different design. There's a number of different reactor designs and Chernobyl is literally the worst one of them. So all you have to do, all you have to do, he said, <laughs> uh, with a humanities degree instead of a physics degree is, is figure out, for example, the, um, I think it's called the, uh, I'm going to get this all wrong and people are going to write in and they're going to be mad. But this is why you have a time machine. You have time to look this stuff up. Um, but there's a uh, – the type of reactor, for example, that is on American submarines is a different reactor than the type that is on even American power plants, much less Soviet power plants. But the ones on American submarines, pretty much – safe as houses. They have never had a real problem. Uh, you just, you train up your engineers, you, you know, pay attention and, uh, they don't, um, uh, blow up on you. Uh, there's another, uh, system that used thorium as the, as the, um, radioactive fuel instead of uranium and is not usually used because you can't make nuclear weapons with thorium. It's not, uh, radioactive enough basically. And so, uh, it doesn't become a big deal, but if you can make thorium plants, the standard plant in the West, the sort of, you know, uh, Usonian build it from a blueprint and forget about it plant as opposed to there was no, never, even in America, there's never been mass production of nuclear power plants. They've all been artisanally handcrafted. So if you can simply standardize nuclear power plant design back in 1947 with a, uh, reactor and you say, well, you don't want to be breeding nuclear uh, weapons material in a, conventional reactor that opens it up to theft and terrorists. You need to breed those in special reactors that you keep on military bases. And, uh, and that's what you do. If you can sort of sell, uh, you don't even have to sell the Soviets on it. You can sell the Americans on it because if the Americans do something for security reasons, the Soviets will definitely say, well, how are we less secure than the Americans? That makes no sense and follow along. So it should not be impossible to seed a, uh, a, a standardized, safer, even if slightly lower wattage, nuclear power plant design 
early enough in the design process that the standard pattern for Russian power plants by the time they're building Chernobyl is basically the, um, uh, uh, the same as the relatively safe models that were available then and were rejected, like I say, because you couldn't build weapons grade uranium out of them. Right. And as a, uh, sort of logistical bonus here, if there's any drinking under tables, your targets are, uh, American scientists, American physicists of the forties, which is not nothing, but no, you know, no. it's not like drinking American physicists of today under the table, but yeah. it's certainly not Ukrainians at any point in human history. Um, and so does this give you a bank shot that allows you to also not have the Fukushima disaster, which of course is an example of ossified, unaccountable, uh, private-public partnership uh, going awry in the same way. I, I don't know enough about Fukushima. Fukushima was kind of a perfect storm because it was on an earthquake fault and got hit by a tsunami while there was a, uh, a nuclear accident occurring. All of those things sort of happen at once. And at some level, I, I don't care what nuclear power plant you build, putting it on an earthquake fault seems to be a terrible idea to me. I'm not the expert on earthquake faults, but that seems like unsound policy. It, it is also a, a less safe reactor form. So right. uh, for the purposes of this discussion, for the purposes of this discussion between two, uh, b- between a theater major and a, uh, and a history major, um, I will say, yes, <laughs> you can, uh, if you standardize nuclear uh, technology early enough, you can probably wind up uh, again, I, I don't know if the Japanese ever did a mass produced nuclear system. Again, they probably didn't because no one does. Um, but if anyone did, it would be the Japanese. I, I think Fukushima, again, because there were specific reactor design types, I could certainly take those back and say, also don't do that when I'm, uh, constructing my ideal thorium reactor. Yes. Cause you, the argument could be, you know, somebody's going to build uh, something on an earthquake zone really near a volcano and mm-hmm. there's, there's kaiju in the water. So you got to consider the, that set of uh, risks. Um, well, and, and as, as the rules go in this podcast, if we're just mentioning Kaiju right, like past the hour mark, it's, it's time to get out and, uh, before they stop us. Yes. To, to retreat to a secure bunker. Uh, but we'll be back uh, next week. Uh, hopefully not having been stomped by giant lizards. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspagel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Prevent this show from suffering a catastrophic meltdown by pitching in with Patreon backers exactly like... Andrew Collins. Darren Dumay. Paul S. Enns. Peter Nix. And Tenant Reed. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest shirt is The Only Wrong Track is a Boring Track. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>